I don't know. Have you ever had one of these, uh, these conversations that start off with words like this? You know, it could be something like, honey, we need to talk. Or, mom, dad, there's something I have to tell you. And then usually it's followed up with something like, you know, this isn't easy for me to talk about. Or, you know, hey, I should have told you this a long time ago. Have you ever had a difficult conversation like this? And a lot of times, conversations that start off like that are conversations of confession. And confession is never comfortable. Whether you're the one confessing or you're the one hearing somebody confess something to you, it's never a comfortable situation. If you've ever been in that situation before, you know what I'm talking about. It's awkward and it's uncomfortable. And honestly, I, I think most people would agree with this. We have a hard time admitting that we're, we're wrong anyways. I mean, just when it comes to little piddly things like we're mistaken about something. I know people that are so unwilling to admit that they're wrong that you can have the evidence right there in front of them and they'll still make up an excuse and say, well, I'm not really wrong. I was just misinformed or I was just mistaken, something like that. I mean, generally speaking, we don't like to even admit we're wrong. But confession is not just admitting that we were wrong, that we're mistaken, but that we intentionally did something that we should not have. And a lot of times when we confess something, it's also admitting that we've possibly covered it up for years or that we've lied about it. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To confess something to someone else. And really, it kind of takes us back to our sermon last week. I don't know how many of you were here, but we... um, talked about the story of David, and honestly, we talked a lot about Saul. Now, two weeks ago, Tim preached for me, and he talked about the life of Saul, but I said last week, you really can't talk about the life of David without talking about the life of Saul. So today, we're, talk- we're uh, starting our second week uh, covering the life of David, and again, we come to the story of Saul and David. We talked about last week how, on the outside, Saul looked like the perfect king, said that he was a head taller than everyone else. He was big and strong. He looked like a king. He had long hair. I mean, he just looked like a royal person, a good leader, somebody that you could look up to. David, though, was just a boy. And the main point from last week's sermon was don't send a man to do a boy's job. Now, of course, that was just a play on words. David, of course, grew to be a man that everybody admired. But at the time, when David was called, he was just a boy. Saul was a king who looked like a perfect candidate. David looked anything but a perfect king. But yet it was David who God had in mind to be the king. And so what we learned last week was that the outside doesn't matter, but it's what is on the inside. But we also talked about, you know, Saul, how he looks so good on the outside and how in a similar way, we are very concerned, most people, with our image, aren't we? We are very concerned with the outside and the appearances and what we look like to other people. And we have this image that we try to convey or portray to other people that sends a certain message about us. We want people to think, I'm successful, or I'm wealthy, or responsible, or I'm level-headed, or just in general, I have it all together. And that takes us back to confession. Confession doesn't really fit very well into this image that we're trying to portray to other people that we have it all together, does it? I think all of us are very concerned with the image that we portray to other people, and that is why confession is so difficult for us, because confession is the opposite of giving people a good impression of us. It's telling someone maybe our deepest, darkest secret. So confession is pretty hard for us, isn't it? So we continue today with the story of a man who really had 
success, and he had wealth, and he had it all together, at least in a way or for a certain time, and of course his name is David. He was only a boy when he was anointed king. He wasn't king right away. He had to wait years to take the throne, and in the meantime, he defeated giants, and then once he became king, he defeated the enemies of God's people. He was successful. God even made a covenant with David that someone from his family would always sit on the throne. And David did all these things that Saul couldn't do, and it was because of his heart. But now we come to the part in the story that you're, uh, if you grew up in church and you heard about David, my guess is your Sunday school teacher probably left some of this stuff out. We talk about the not-so-glamorous, not-so-popular, and I don't blame your Sunday school teacher. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. I would have left it out, too. I was even talking to Rex. I think he said he's teaching the Sunday school class after this, and he said, I'm, I'm leaving some of this stuff out, which is probably a good thing. But we get to the part of David's story that is really difficult for us to hear and difficult to understand. And what we learn from the life of David is this, that sin is natural. Sin is natural. The consequences to it are inevitable, but repentance is a choice. Sin is natural, consequences are inevitable, but repentance is a choice. So here's where the story today, at least, begins. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. We put the verses up on the screen for you, but I always encourage people, please bring your Bible to church. Even if you aren't reading your Bible on your own, which I hope you, everybody ought to come to the place where they do that on a daily basis, but even if you don't read your Bible, bring it with you, because I think you'll find that if you look up these passages in your own Bible, uh, you get familiar with the Word, you get familiar with your own Bible, and I think it's a little bit easier to get into the habit of reading the Bible. So I always want to encourage you, bring your own Bible. Uh, we read from the ESV version. I don't care what version you read out of, they're usually close enough, you can follow along, but I always encourage people, bring your own Bible, uh, or read from your smartphone, that's what I usually read my Bible on, but whatever works, but bring your own Bible if you can, but if not, we've got it up here for you. We also have Bibles in the pew in front of you if you'd like to follow along there. But it's 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. They ravaged the Amorites and, excuse me, Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is, not this, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness, and she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now I grew up with the story of David and Goliath. I can remember as a kid, I even had action figures of David and Goliath. I remember the feeling of heartbreak when I broke Goliath's spear. And I remember the elation when my dad took both ends of that plastic spear and he melted it and stuck it back together. And he fig I mean, I still remember this. I was probably five, six years old, but I remember that. I grew up on this story, David and Goliath. And David, to me, was a hero. And as I got old enough to learn the whole story, I was heartbroken as a boy when I learned that David wasn't the hero that I thought he was. But I tell you what, when I read David's story as a man, he's still a hero to me. His story provides great comfort because I can relate. I've made mistakes just like David has. You see, apart from God, there is no hero, at least not a perfect one. As a matter of fact, Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us this. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Skipping down to verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Actually, these words, it says, as it is written. This is Paul writing, but he's quoting somebody else. And the person he's quoting is David from the Psalms. From David, David's own words, we learn that no one is righteous. No, not one. Not a single person that has ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ can be perfect, can be holy, can be righteous on their own. And so we, we know, for those of us who grew up in church and we know the story of David... And maybe to some of you this is new, even if you grew up with this story, you think, how in the world could David, the guy who slayed giants and did all this stuff, how in the world could David do something like this? And here's the thing, if you don't know the whole story, you don't know the half of it yet, as far as what David has done. And it kind of reminds me, you know, as we're talking about, you know, how people get wrapped up into sin, I kind of had this realization probably about a month or two ago. Um, I'm the kind of person when I listen to the radio or something or I read in the paper that somebody has been arrested for, let's say, intent to distribute methamphetamine, something like that, I kind of cheer a little bit. And I think, man, that's great. I hope justice is done. And because I know that drugs destroy families. And so I kind of have like this internal celebration. But something happened a while ago that kind of challenged my thinking a little bit. Not that that has changed at all. I, I still feel that way. But uh, we had a, a friend that we, we made through Encounter Ministries, this ministry in Missouri that, that Liz and I are involved with and several others from the church. And the guy who started that ministry had a daughter that for a while got wrapped up into drugs. And, uh, and she got very deep into it, got addicted to meth, and ended up uh, distributing it, and she got caught. And she was arrested, uh, was put in, in jail. And anyways, in the meantime, she came back to the Lord and completely turned her life around, and now she gives her testimony, and she speaks to prisoners and things like that. But the thing about it was she had done something wrong, and even though she had changed, she still had to pay the consequences. So anyways, she had to go to court. This happened a couple years ago, but she still had court cases from this old case. And so my friend, he texted me and said, hey, be praying about this. You know, there's a really good chance that she's going to go to prison. And it looked like she was going to prison no matter what, even though she had changed. Um, and, I mean, in the meantime, she'd gotten married, too, to a really nice guy. I mean, all this stuff. And so it was a really, really interesting situation. So I found myself praying for this lady, and I thought, isn't it interesting when we know somebody and we have a personal connection, how here I'm praying that, usually I'd pray that justice is done, but in this situation, I was kind of praying for grace and mercy. And so my point is this, because I knew her story and I knew kind of what led to the place that she had been, I kind of had this compassion for her that I normally don't have. So coming, the whole reason why I'm telling you this is coming back to this whole, how could David do this? Well, we understand sin when we know people individually that get, or personally that get wrapped up in a sin, that it doesn't just happen overnight. Somebody doesn't just wake up one morning and says, you know, I think I'll get addicted to meth. You know, or I think I'll be a bank robber. Or I think I'll, you know, hit my wife. Or I think, you know, whatever it is. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not condoning any of that. Don't, give me, don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that sin doesn't just start like that. And that's what we see here in the life of David. Well, how could David do something like this? It didn't start as sin, really. It starts with little compromises, and that is so important for you personally to understand. Sin doesn't start off with sin. Sin starts with little compromises, little decisions that affect us. And this is what happens with David. The first thing we read, it says, In the spring, when kings go out to battle, was David a king? Yes, he was. Was he out to battle? No, he wasn't. 
He sent Joab and the rest of his army out to battle, and David stayed at home. Where was he? He was in the couch. He was in the house. He had just gotten up off the couch. <laughs> he sent Joab to fight his battles for him. Does that sound like anybody we've talked about recently? You remember Saul as that big nine-foot giant Goliath was taunting God and his people? And what did Saul do? He allowed a little shepherd boy to go out and fight his battles for him. David's starting to sound a little bit like Saul here. And I think, you know, what happened to David? It's kind of tragic, isn't it? When, when you think about what we already know about David, I mean, what happened? He used to be a man of action. He never backed out from a fight. This was the guy who fought lions and bears to protect his father's sheep. He told Goliath, hey, I'm going to cut off your head because you, you uh, I forgot to warn you, this is not a G-rated sermon. This is not even a PJ rated sermon, and it's going to get worse. So just to warn you, this is like PG-13, maybe in between sermon, and it's because it's straight from the Bible. So anyways, this is just the start of that. But anyways, David said, I'm going to cut off your head uh, because you have defied the one true God, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, so David was a man of action. And then another kind of funny thing about David just doing something without really thinking it through, um, when the ark came into Jerusalem, you remember what happened? He stripped down to his undies and started dancing around because he just could not contain his excitement. It's in the that's not me telling you. That's exactly what it says in the Bible. His wife even got after him and said, "You know, this isn't the way a king should act." And he said, "Hey, I can't help it. I am this excited." I mean, he was a man of action. And what happened? He's sitting on the couch at home. All his men are fighting his battle for him. It's kind of sad. So David isn't where he's supposed to be. Do you understand what I'm saying here? That sin doesn't start off with sin. Sin starts off with little compromises. David wasn't where he should have been. So he's up on the roof, and all of a sudden he sees a woman bathing. It was by accident. You know, was there any wrong on Bathsheba's half? I don't think so. I don't think Bathsheba did anything wrong. I don't think she was like you know, trying to do anything. I think she was probably, a lot of times people say she was on the roof, but the Bible doesn't say that. It just says that David was on the roof and he could see her. You know, David's house is, has a different vantage point than every other house around, okay? Because he was in a palace. It would have been bigger than any, any other house. So he had a vantage point that was a little bit different than anybody else. So I don't think Bathsheba was doing anything wrong. She was just taking a bath and David saw something that he shouldn't have seen. And that could have been the end of it. That could have been the end. He could have said, whoa, didn't mean to see that, gone inside, and that it could have been done. But that's not what he did. The sin happened when he took a second look. And he began to stare. And he didn't look away. And again, it could have stopped there, but it didn't. He ended up sinning for her. Then he slept with her. And I mean, what David has done up to this point is bad enough. Laziness started with laziness. Then lust, then he slept with a woman that wasn't his wife, then he slept with a woman who was married, and then he also broke a Jewish law by sleeping with a woman who was going through her purification rites. So he broke all these rules, all these laws, and David thinks he got away with it. And all of a sudden, he gets something in the mail that says, David, I'm pregnant. So David, again, could have confessed and came clean, and that could have been the end of it. But, you know, this is what happens with sin. Sin, when we refuse to confess it, when we refuse to bring it to light, it just gets more and more complicated. It multiplies and it gets worse and worse. And that's exactly what happens with David. David thinks, well, that's okay. Everybody will just think it's her husband's baby. There's just one problem with that. You know, and this is so interesting in the story of David. If you were here last week, you, you might remember this. We compared the character of Saul with the character of David. 
really, compared to David, Saul didn't have much character. But now in the story, we see another transition because David's character, or lack thereof, is held up against Uriah. Uriah is the woman's husband. Her name is Bathsheba. The husband's name is Uriah. And Uriah has the character that David should have had. And why I say that is because it says Uriah wasn't home because he was off fighting David's battle. So David's whole cover-up wasn't going to work because guess what? Uriah wasn't home. He is where David should have been, fighting the battle for David. And yet David took advantage of his wife. So David says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? i got to find a way to get Uriah here. So he sent for Uriah. Uriah comes to him and he says, hey, I, I tell you what, you need a vacation, man. You've been working hard, fighting my battle. I want you to go home, spend the night with your wife. This guy hasn't seen his wife in a long time. We don't need to go into the gory details, but I mean, it's pretty obvious what David thought was going to happen. But there's just one problem. Uriah is a man of character. The next morning, David gets up and he finds out that Uriah never went home. He says, Uriah, you know, how in the world did you not go home? I mean, you're here at home. You've been at the battlefield. Why not go home and be with your wife? He said, my men are away at war. None of them can be with their wives. None of them can go eat a home-cooked meal. Why should I? He was a man of character. So David tries a second time. This time he gets him drunk, and he tries the same thing. And Uriah, even in a drunken stupor, still refuses to go home. He sleeps by the gates. And that's when David does the unthinkable. He knows that his plan isn't working, and so he sends a message to Joab. Joab is his commander. And he says, hey, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. When the enemy approaches, I want you to pull back from him. So David set up Uriah. And Joab follows through. Uriah is killed in battle. And so David, the man after God's own heart, because of his decision to stay at home, has become an adulterer and now a murderer. And what's worse is that David seems to think he's gotten away with it. It's like David has become so entitled or arrogant, so disconnected with God, that he thinks that what he's done has escaped the eyes of God. And it's kind of interesting to think about. Success has a way of doing that, doesn't it? When we have success, even if it's God-given, we tend to start thinking, well, I don't need God so much anymore. And I don't think we intentionally think that. I think it just happens over time. Because we have success, we begin to depend on God less and less and less and less. And that's what we see here in the story of David. He is so disconnected from God, it's like he's completely oblivious that he's done anything wrong. That's why he fell into sin, because his relationship with God, that, that thing that made him distinct from Saul wasn't intact anymore. He didn't have that close relationship. But fortunately, David had a good friend, the best kind of friend. You need friends like this, friends who are willing to call you out when you do something wrong. His name is Nathan, and he's a prophet. And Nathan comes to visit David, and he says, David, I want to tell you a story, okay? David says, all right, go. He says, there's two guys. There's a rich man and a poor man. So the rich man has all kinds of livestock. He's got herds and herds of sheep. He's very wealthy, can buy anything he wants. But the poor man just had one little ewe lamb. And David, the ewe lamb wasn't livestock. It was uh, more of a pet. It used to eat out of their hand. They, they brought it inside the house. It was a family pet. And that's all the poor man had. And he said, one day the rich man had some friends come into town. And he offered to make him dinner. But the man was so selfish and so stingy that he was unwilling to use one of his thousands of sheep to feed his guest. So David, you know what that rich man did? He stole the poor man's little ewe lamb, his little pet. 
slaughtered it, and fed it to his guest. As he tells the story, David's neck begins to turn red, I imagine. His fists begin to clench, and his face turns red. And as Nathan ends the story, he says, you give me a name. You tell me who this man is, and I will make sure that he pays for it four times over again. David, excuse me, Nathan points his finger at David and says, David, it's you. You are the rich man. You've got wives and concubines and anything you could ever want. Uriah had one thing, his beautiful wife, wife Bathsheba, and you took it from him. And then you took his life. And it's almost for the first time like God holds up a mirror and David finally sees his sin. And I tell you what, this is where I'm a little uncomfortable because Saul sinned, right? That's why he got the kingdom ripped away from him. And David sins. But yet David's called the man after God's own heart. I mean, God stripped the kingdom away from Saul. Why didn't he do the same thing to David? And I cannot emphasize how important this is. If you started sleeping already, wake up just long enough to hear this, okay? This is important, and I can't overemphasize how important this is. Sin is sin, okay? It's inevitable. But the difference between Saul and David comes in how they respond to sin. Now, as people, we like to put sin on different levels. And man, when we look at uh, David's sin, we would say that's pretty bad, wouldn't we? God doesn't see that. I don't think God sees sin that way. He simply sees sin as sin. But you know what he sees more than our sin? He sees our heart and our attitude towards sin. So if you want to know why it was that Saul got the kingdom ripped from his hands and David didn't, why Saul was rebellious against God and yet David is called the man after God's own heart, even though he had done all these horrible, awful things. If you want to know why that is, look at David's heart and his attitude towards sin. And we see it right here, plain as day in Scripture, 2 Samuel 12, 13. As soon as he hears what Nathan says, you know what, how David responds? Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He admits his sin. See, David and Saul's level of character, that's not what's important. It's their attitude towards their own sin. Saul, he never makes this confession. Saul, even though he's confronted by Samuel with his sin, he never said, oh, yeah, I didn't realize. And he never confessed. He never asked for forgiveness. He never repented, never turned from what he did. He just kept doing the wrong thing and making excuses. But David, as soon as it's brought to his attention, he says, I have sinned. He admits it, and he repents. And we, we see a picture of this in Psalm 51. Uh, David, he was a man of many talents. He's a warrior. He was a poet. He wrote songs. He did a lot of things. And this is one of the poems that David wrote. After this happens, these are the words of David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone, or you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your worms, words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, repentance brings our sin to light. And that's exactly what David does. He doesn't hide it. 
He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't deny it. He says, I have sinned. I am guilty. And I know that the only way out of this sin is for God to forgive me. And that's exactly what he does. You see, when we repent, we bring sin to light. You you see, sin likes to remain in the darkness, just like we see in the life of David. He keeps it hidden. And what happens? It grows and it grows and it gets deeper and it gets worse and it continues to multiply and compound. That's what sin does when it remains in the dark. But when it's brought to light, when we confess it, it loses its power. We're no longer worried about oh, what's going to happen, or I have to keep this concealed, or I have to make these choices to make sure nobody finds out. We don't have to worry about that anymore because everybody knows when we bring sin to light. But just because repentance takes away the eternal consequences of sin, that's what it does. When we repent, when we turn to Jesus to forgive us of our sins, it takes away the eternal consequences of sin. But it doesn't always take away the earthly consequences. You see, David, what he has done can't be undone. Uriah did not come back to life. He still had consequences to pay for a sin, and and God outlines those for him. He says, first of all, I'm going to take your firstborn son. That's hard for us to read, isn't it? That's hard for us as people to understand, and we don't have to understand. God is God, and it says what it says. We don't have to like it or agree with it or understand it or anything else. But as humans, we read that and we think, how could God do that? Well, to us, death is the ultimate evil, the worst thing that could happen, right? Right? But look at death from God's perspective. God gathered that child to himself, taking him away from what what was going on in that household, which was not good. So, I mean, for us, it's hard to understand, but I think we can understand from God's point of view um, his thoughts on it, I hope. But through this tragedy, so David loses his firstborn son, uh, or not his firstborn, but he loses this son. And through this tragedy, we see something else that sets David apart. You see, while this child was sick, David, he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't shower. People were really worried about him, the people closest to him. They, they, they thought, what is he going to do next? And then the child dies, and they think, oh, my goodness, we can't, eat. We can't tell him. This is going to be too much for him. David hears him whispering and says, is the child dead? They said, yes. And David does what nobody expected him to do. He gets up, he takes a bath, eats, and then he goes to the temple to worship God. That's another thing that sets David apart. He didn't blame God. Sure, he missed his son, and he was upset, and he tried to change God's mind. That's why he didn't shower or anything, because he was so wrapped up in asking God for grace and mercy. And God took his son anyways. And as soon as he did, he worshiped. That was another thing that set David apart. But another consequence of the sin, he said, The sword will never depart from your house. His enemies would do what he did in secret in broad daylight. That was what God told him. He said, what you have done in secret, people are going to do, your enemies are going to do in broad daylight for everyone to see. And that's exactly what happens. What he probably didn't expect is the sword didn't come from the Amorites or anybody else or the Philistines. It came from his own household, from his own son, Absalom. Absalom, this is actually, this happens after Bathsheba. Again, David becomes a man of inaction. What happens is, this is the part that I said is not G-rated. Uh, David's son Amnon, or excuse me, that would be Absalom's half-brother, raped his sister Tamar. Okay, so this is the kind of dysfunction going on in this family. And David was mad about it, but he didn't do anything about it. Absalom, he absolutely burned with anger, and eventually, I think two years later, he ended up taking Amnon's life because of what he did to his sister. 
But Absalom, I think, was rebellious because he saw the inaction of his father. So he began to rebel against David, and he got some popularity. He even forced David to have to flee Jerusalem. And the very same roof where, where David saw Bathsheba, Absalom slept with David's concubines right there in broad daylight, exactly like the prophet said. 2 Samuel 15 says, he stole the hearts of Israel. See, God tells us that he gave David peace on all sides, but yet David traded peace for war with his own household. And that's what sin does, doesn't it? God gives us peace. He shows us the best way. He shows us the good way. And when we choose to go our own way, we trade that in. We trade peace for war. So David's life was plagued with hardship and loss for the rest of his life. So it's kind of interesting. As we look up, think about the life of David, we say, okay, is David's life a success story or a failure? Now, God, he brought good out of tragedy. Bathsheba gave birth to Solomon. Solomon, King Solomon, ushered God's people into their golden age. says he made, he made silver as popular as gravel in his kingdom. I mean, they just were incredibly wealthy. God... Um, allowed Solomon to build a temple that David wanted desperately to build, but he wasn't allowed to because he had shed blood. Solomon got to build the temple. And then David's final instructions to Solomon were this, set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. If you were to open up to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11, we come to a chapter that we have called the Hall of Faith. And it mentions famous people from the faith, people like Abraham and Moses. And in that list of people, you know whose name you find? David. He's a success story. But it's not because of his own success. It's because he learned to rely on God. He wasn't perfect. But even in his sin, he always turned back to God. You see, David teaches us so much about sin. The first thing he teaches us is that everybody's guilty. Everybody is guilty of sin. Nobody is righteous, not even one. Now, that's not a license to sin. We don't just say, oh, well, we're all going to sin, so we don't really need to worry about it. We'll just do what we want to do. That's not how it works. It's not a license to continue to sin. It's a warning that we have a propensity to sin, and we have to guard ourselves against it. The Bible tells us to flee from evil. In other words, we need to avoid situations that lead to temptation. So if you take what David says seriously, the example of David here, that means that you and I, understanding that all of us have a natural inclination to sin, that means in your life there are going to be certain things that you need to stay away from. If you're trying to change your life, if you're trying to follow Jesus the way that you ought to, it, it might mean that certain things in your life are going to have to change. There might be certain places that you probably shouldn't go anymore. If it leads to temptation, you need to stay away from them. There might be certain people that kind of drag you into temptation. You might have to distance yourselves from those people. There might be other things. You might not be able to have a computer in your house. I don't know what kind of uh, temptation you're, you're facing, but it might be that kind of stuff. I mean, it could be anything. But anything that causes you to sin, you need to avoid even the opportunity to sin as much as you can. Now, there's going to come times that you, you can't protect yourself from sin, but as best as you can, you need to stay away from situations that allow you to be tempted. That's where David screwed up. David was lazy. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing, and that's how he got caught up in sin. So we need to avoid those situations. Another lesson he teaches us is that if we're not filling our lives up with godly things, then we're going to fill it up with garbage. David had left an open space in his life. He wouldn't do anything except laying around on the couch, and it got him into trouble. We need to learn from David by staying connected to God. 
He had become so distant from God that he didn't, it was like he didn't even know that he sinned. And we're like, well, duh. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious, David. But he was so callous, so disconnected from God that he didn't even know. But another thing is when we do fall into sin, we need to deal with it right away. And I think that's two-part. The first thing is we need to confess it to God. God, I have sinned, just like the words of David. But I think there's something else that a lot of times we avoid, and that's we need to confess it to other people. And every time I talk about this, I've got somebody that comes up and says, I disagree with you. And that's fine. You can. But here's the thing. I know a lot of people that they use confession to God as a cop-out. They're willing to confess something to God, and they think, well, it's just between me and God. And that's because that's very comfortable. The problem is they keep repeating the same sin, and they keep saying, well, I'm confessing it to God, so I'm okay. That's not how it works. You see, when we confess something to other people, it brings the sin to light, and we have other people helping us deal with the same temptation and sin. But if you were caught up in some sort of repetitive sin, I'm telling you, you need to bring somebody along with you. You need to confess that to a person. And the Bible talks about that, too. We don't have time to read all the verses because I'm sure we're probably over time already. But it talks about that, how we need to confess our sins, not just to God. That, that's the most important thing. But we need to confess to other people. We need to have some people help us with that. And I tell you what, nothing's harder than confessing something to somebody else. But there's nothing more freeing than confessing something to somebody else. When we confess our sin to others, it loses its power. The, the shame, the regret, all those things, they, they are diminished when we finally come clean. Another lesson we learned from David is that I think we need to be very careful about judging the sins of other people. Now, I'm not talking about accountability. One of the things that drives me crazy sometimes is that people say, well, we're not supposed to judge. And that's true. The Bible says that. But you need to understand that accountability and judgment are not the same thing. Judgment is when you say you've done something wrong, and because you did something wrong, this is the penalty for it, and that's what's going to happen to you. And it's kind of when we elevate ourselves above somebody else. That's judgment. That's when we sit on a judgment seat and say, you're guilty, this is what's going to happen to you. When we point out sin in the lives of other people, that is not judgment. Okay, that's accountability. As long as we have the right heart when we do it, that's accountability. That's not judgment. That's saying, man, you have called yourself a Christian. This is the standard by which you said you're going to live your life, and you're not holding to it. And I care about you enough that I want to confront you about it. So we need to understand judgment and accountability are not the same thing. And I tell you what, in the church today, we need more accountability. We need more Nathans. And I tell you what, one of the things about it is sometimes I'll have people come to me because they see some, somebody doing something wrong, and they say, hey, you really should talk to this person because I saw them do this. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, you're closer to that person. Why don't you talk to them? Well, I'm, I'm worried about damaging our relationship. And I'm like, man, if you think that confronting your friend about something is going to damage your relationship, then it's not that great of a relationship to start with. It's maybe not as strong as you think. If you've got a close friend that's wrapped up in sin, you need to ask the question, do I care enough about that person to confront them or not? But I tell you what, I think that says a lot about your relationship if you're not willing to confront sin. I've got people in my life who I have invited to hold me accountable, and they do. If I say something or do something that I shouldn't be doing, they're not afraid to say, you really shouldn't do that. That's not consistent with what you said that you're going to do. And I appreciate that. I like that. We need more of that. We're almost done, I promise. Um, but the reason why we can't be judgmental about sin, first of all, it's not your place. But the second thing is, um, 
you need to acknowledge that you might just be one or two bad decisions away from the same place. Sin happens when we start to make little concessions. And I tell you what, it doesn't take us too long to get wrapped up in sin. So before you judge the sin of other people, understand that you're not too many steps away from the same sin. So that's kind of what we call the lower story. As we talk about the story, we talk about how there's a lower story, the here and the now in our lives, but then there's an upper story. There's what God is doing, not just in our personal lives, but what God is doing all across humanity for all of time. And the upper story is this. We started with that Romans passage where it talked about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I think I left out verse 24. 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Continue on to verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is what makes David a success story. Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise that God had made to David. You remember that promise? He said, somebody from your, th- from your family is always going to sit on the throne. And it kind of looked like for several hundred years that that didn't happen. Because for a while, Israel wasn't, uh, there wasn't a person from David's line that was on the throne. But then Jesus comes, and he's from the line of David, and he is not just a king, but he is the king of kings, fulfilling what God had promised to David. Jesus is the fulfillment that God made to David, that somebody from his line would always sit on the throne. His name is Jesus. And so I think the the important thing for us to understand is, man, I don't care what your story is, what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. God can take your story, and he can make it a success story. And you say, no, you don't understand. You don't know what I've done. Or sometimes it's, man, you don't know what's been done to me. And, and you know, I don't think God can turn this around. you got to understand when you say those words and when you think those thoughts, you need to ask yourself the question, what does that say about what you think about God? If you believe that God is all-powerful, then you need to understand that he can take any story and make it a success story, just like we see in the life of David, how an adulterer and a murderer has the nickname, a man after God's own heart. He can take any story and make it a success story, and that includes yours. And it kind of brings me back in closing here to, you know, David, he was so furious about that poor man and that little ewe lamb that was sacrificed and callously killed. And it got me thinking about Jesus and the title that he has in the New Testament, the Lamb of God. How he didn't deserve what he took on himself, but he did it anyway. That's why we celebrate communion every Sunday, to remember what Jesus did for us. That's what it's really about, what he gave to us on the cross. And you cannot make it about you and your morality and your moral compass and your success and your responsibility. You can't make life about those things. It's about Jesus. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he's done for you. That's what makes our story a success story. Sin, it's inevitable. You will sin. You have sin. Sin is natural. The consequences are inevitable. But repentance is a choice. And that's a choice you have to make. Am I going to continue trying to become good enough, a good enough person? Or am I going to turn from sin and turn towards God? That's the, that's the decision you've got to make in your heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day you've given us today. We thank you uh, that we have this place to gather. I'm thankful, Lord, for the things that you're doing um, in this church and in this community, that that people care about you and want to follow you and want to serve you and and that they want to share that with other people. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to push us forward, Lord, to being the church that you've called us to be. 
that we'll invite others to be a part of what you're doing here and that, Lord, you're really driving what is happening here in the church. Lord, I pray that, that um, as we sing um, and as we listen to your word and as we, as we uh, fellowship together, that it's not about us, but, Lord, that it's always about you and it's learning more about you. It's bringing glory and honor to you. Lord, I pray that today that you've uh, spoken to our hearts from the word, that it's not my words or my preparation or anything like that, Lord, because I know that that would be weak. But, Lord, it's about you and what you have to share. And I pray, Lord, that you all open our hearts to what it is that you're trying to teach us today. Lord, as we look at the life of David, that we understand that all of us can relate to David, that all of us have sinned, that all of us have fallen short of your glory. But, God, we know that that points us to you. That points us to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we acknowledge our own sin, that we will realize that we, on our own, cannot earn your grace and your mercy, but it's only through the grace of Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that all of us will turn our hearts towards you, towards him, to cover us from our sin. We thank you, Lord, for your promise, for the gift of heaven, for your grace and your mercy and your love for an unlovable people. Answer him, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our invitation song. You know, repentance, that's the word that we've been talking about. It means to turn. And what repentance starts with is acknowledging that what we've done is wrong, confessing what we've done and that it's wrong, acknowledging that it's wrong. But there's another part of that too, and that is that we need to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's part of salvation. That's part of coming to him. All of us, we don't just turn from sin, but another confession that we make is the greatest confession, and that is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is our Savior. And that's a confession that all of us need to make in order to turn to him. My hope and my prayer is that you'll confess your sin to him, but that you'll also confess with your lips that you follow Jesus and only Jesus. If you've never done that, if you've never stood up and said, I do want to follow Jesus, I want to challenge you today to do that. I don't know what's holding you back from that. Uh, It's something that you make, a decision you make in your heart. It's also something you confess with your mouth in front of people. If you've never done that, I want to challenge you to do that today, to confess that Jesus is Lord, to confess that you do want to follow him, to be baptized as a symbol of your obedience to him. That's my challenge to you. If you've got something on your heart today, maybe you're sitting there thinking, there is something I need to confess. Don't put it off. Confess it to somebody. You always have an excuse not to share it. If you don't have anybody to share it with, we've got some uh, godly men in this room, elders that are trying their best to follow. They're not perfect. None of us are, but they're trying to follow God. And I know that they'd be willing to pray with you to hear whatever it is that you have in your heart. But if you've got something you need to talk about this morning, they're going to be at the back of the room as we uh, sing this song of, of invitation.